0: Good morning, Salt City Church. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew. Um, We're going to be working through chapters 14 through 16. And unfortunately, the words will, the text will not be on the screens, and that's due to me forgetting to turn them in on time. So pull out your Bible, pull out your phone. We're going to be in Matthew 14, continuing our series through the book of Matthew. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drake, and I'm the director of Salt Company, our college ministry here at Salt City Church. And uh, a quick update on my life, my wife and I are about two and a half weeks away from the due date of our first child. And so, yes, thank you. Um, So I have confidence I'm going to be able to get through this message okay. Uh, I don't think anything is going to get too crazy, but it could be a wild Sunday before us. Um, But something that my wife and I were able to do, like our last big event that we could do before having this kid, is that we went to a Timberwolves game. So you can imagine, it was a while ago. Um, so we went to this Timberwolves game, and I remember the moment. My wife and I are sitting center court, looking out like eight rows back, where we're watching these players run into the court. And I just sit there and I'm like, hey, Paige, do you know who that is? She's like, no, I, I have no idea. And so I'm like, that is D'Angelo Russell. That's the dude that we just got from the Golden State Warriors. He's our new star guard. Like, he's going to be partnering with Carl Anthony Towns. And it's going to be this dynamic duo that we get to watch tonight. She's like, cool. I get Like, cool. And I'm like, what? why are you not so excited about this? Like, why did we have different reactions? It's because our perspective of that person determined our response to him. And so since we had very different perspectives of who D'Angelo Russell was, we also responded dramatically different. And so what we're going to see in this text today is that Jesus is going to approach different characters in these stories, and we are going to learn what their perspective is of him by their response to him. And so Jesus is continuing this ministry that he's been doing throughout the course of Matthew where he's communicating this new kingdom that he's bringing to the earth. And it it leads to this climactic moment in chapter 16 where Jesus asks his disciples, like, who do other people say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says that you're the Christ, the Son of God. You are Lord. And so it's this huge moment where the disciples finally get it, that he is Lord. And these stories leading up to it are going to show people Show people who do not truly see him as Lord. And so that question is going to be flipped to us this morning. Who do you see Jesus as? And I think we all, if you've been following Jesus for a while, like we have this habitual response, like, yeah, he's the Lord of my life. But as we sit with this text, I think we'll realize that you don't actually see him as Lord. Merry Christmas. we got a, a nice, joyful message For you, Um, So we're going to look at three different characters. We're looking at the disciples. We're looking at the Pharisees, the religious elite. And then we're going to look at a Canaanite woman at the end. And so let's start off by looking at the disciples in chapter 14. We're starting in verse 15. And as we look at this interaction that the disciples have with Jesus, it's going to be incredibly telling of who they see him as. So starting in verse 15. It says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus says, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And so this story that we see... Is essentially the disciples and Jesus before 5,000, what it says, men, not including women and children. So we're looking at about 15,000 to 20,000 people. That is Target Center, where the Timberwolves play, packed out, and they're standing there with five loaves and two fish. And then what we see at the end of this is that everyone was satisfied. Like they were stuffed. This wasn't some like cocktail hour where some hors d'oeuvres were being served. This was a feast. And we go on. To a couple pages later, if you look at 15, where we see another story very similar to this. Verse 32 through 37. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry. Lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So we see some similarities with both of these stories. Both of them communicating Jesus having compassion on this crowd. Like he sees this crowd of people who are earnestly searching for something. And he has a desire to provide bread to satisfy the physical hunger that's going on in their their stomach. But he also realizes that it's not just the desolate place that they're at that's desolate. He he realizes that the souls of all the people that are coming to him are as desolate as the place that they're at. And it's not just the hunger physically that they feel, but it's this hunger of their soul that Jesus is looking to satisfy. That he's looking for these people to come to him. And in John 6, we see him communicating that he is the bread of life himself. And so he's drawing these people in. But we also see some commonalities with the disciples. Like both times, Jesus is like, hey, you give them something to eat. And the disciples are just, like, looking around, like, looking throughout the whole place, like, Jesus, I don't see anything here. Like, I don't know if you see a Panera that I'm not seeing. I don't see any food around. Where are we going to get this bread? Where are we supposed to get this food? And they literally say, like, there's nothing here that's going to solve that problem. We need to send them elsewhere. Why do they have this response? Like, even the second time, the disciples miss it. Like, I, I'm imagining myself in this story, and you think one of the 12 disciples would have been like, hey, guys, um, something's coming back to mind. Like, I remember another time where there's a lot of people, not a lot of bread, and Jesus did a thing, and then they all ate. Like, you think one of them would have been able to draw that back to mind, that second story, and been like, Jesus can do this. But they said, no, send them elsewhere. The reason why they have this response is that they saw Jesus as a great teacher, but they didn't see him as Lord. They saw him as one that could teach the crowds, teach the masses, but not feed their soul. They didn't even, it didn't even cross their minds that Jesus could be the one that would provide this for them. And they were blind to the reality that Jesus was ultimately talking about their soul needing to be satisfied Him And so their lack of a request for him to do anything in that moment said it all. In their hearts, they saw that Jesus was unable to provide in that moment. Therefore, let's send them somewhere else. And the disciples did not realize that there was actually no other place that they could send them to be satisfied than where they were in that moment next to Jesus. And again, like, as I read this story, I'm like how, like, how dumb could the disciples be, you know? Like, they just saw this happen, and then it's happening again. Like, how could they not realize Jesus can provide in this moment? But then I realize we do this all the time. Like, how many times have you seen God provide in your life, and yet you're wondering right now, is he able to provide for you now? Like maybe it's the financial aspect of your life. Like You've seen him provide, but right now you're in this spot where you can't see him providing for you. You can't see him caring for you in this moment, and you're wondering, can he come through? And you're also blind to the reality that the security that you're seeking in financial gain is just showcasing your desire to find security and rest in Christ himself. So my... Uh, My brother-in-law is a pilot, and uh, recently in the past year, I actually got to go co-pilot with him and get in a very, very small plane, Um, and we we actually got to take off together, and he actually gave me some of the controls to fly this plane with him. So he's telling me as we're taking off, like, hey, pull back a little bit, and then we're starting to lift this plane. He's giving me the controls to steer this thing as we're flying, and then the most terrifying and probably the wildest thing I've ever done was landing this plane. And so we're, like, turning this corner, and it's like, and I've been avoiding it in my mind, but it's imminent. This, this runway is coming. Like, we, we have to land this thing at some point. And so we're getting close, and he tells me, hey, Drake, hold this dial at 70. I, d- I did not let that thing move off 70. And so as we're getting closer, my hands are just sweating like crazy. My heart is racing. And then we're getting close to the ground, and a little gust of wind, like, hit our plane. And then I think I forgot the next 10 seconds of my life. Um, and then we landed, and it was good. Everything was all right. But why was I freaking out so much? Why was I so uneasy in that moment? I blanked out on the reality that the dude next to me was a pilot. Like, he's done this a time or two. He knows how to land a plane. Everything was under control. Why were the disciples freaking out so much and trying to get people away from them as quickly as they could to go find food elsewhere. They didn't realize that the one sitting next to them was Lord. Our response to circumstances in our life reveal who we see Jesus as. And so if you were to look at how you're responding to this moment in your life, what would that tell you of your perspective of Jesus? Is he Lord of your life? Next, we're going to see uh, an interaction with the Pharisees. So again, these are the religious elite of that time. And as the Pharisees saw Jesus doing his teachings and doing these miracles, they wanted to ch- confront him and challenge him often. And so the, the Pharisees kind of round up the, the crew after they see him feeding the 5,000, and they come before him in order to test him. And so we're going to see that in chapter 15, 15. Verses one through nine. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and from Jerusalem and said, "Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat." He answered them, "And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother." And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So why does Jesus respond so firmly here? Let's look back. What do what the Pharisees and the scribes say that his disciples broke? And it's actually like a passive-aggressive way of saying, okay, your disciples, but also your disciples' leader broke this. And so they're confronting Jesus and they're challenging him. And what did they say he broke? If we look, it says... That they broke the tradition of their elders, not God's word. So what are these traditions that it's talking about? So when the Jewish people were given the writings of Moses, there was actually these writings that were created as almost a commentary to the writings of Moses. So these other writings were helping people understand what Moses wrote. But over time, these writings became more firm in their religion. And so it became a tradition to them. And as those traditions were carried out over generation and generation, those traditions grew to hold as much authority as God's word itself. Which we're going to see, it actually led them to live a life that contradicted God's word as well. So Jesus is actually going to challenge one of these traditions. And so we see the line where it says, If anyone says to his father, Or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. So what is he talking about here? So one of the traditions that they had was this idea of korban. Now, korban was a practice that they would set aside money to be used solely for the purpose of the temple. So they're like, okay, I don't want to use this money for my own selfish reason. So I'm going to set this aside and I can't touch that. That is for the temple. Seems like a great idea. But these Pharisees began to use it for their own selfish gain. They would actually set aside large bulks of money so that they didn't have to use it for good reasons. And so their parents, when they were reaching an old age, would come to their kids and be like, hey, we're reaching an age where we're no longer able to provide for ourselves. We're no longer able to work and to get income so that we can have a living. We've provided for you. We've sacrificed for you. Now we're asking, can you provide for us? And so they go to their kids asking for money. And the kids would be like, sorry, Mom and Dad. Um, I wish you would have came to me sooner. Uh, If you would have came to me two weeks ago, I probably would have been able to give you money. But I actually, I set aside all the money I would have given to you as Korban. And so what what I would have been able to help you out with is actually set aside for the temple. And I I can't give that to you. Otherwise I would, but I can't take it out. So essentially... They would set aside money and say this is for the temple to avoid needing to give it to their parents so that they could use it for selfish gain. And Jesus is saying your traditions have led you to contradict one of the most obvious commands in the scriptures, to honor your father and mother. And since they didn't see Jesus as Lord... It allowed them to diminish the authority of his word and to add their own commands to God's law. For them to add things to God's law that they were actually really good at. So they could add things that allowed them to look at their life and say, I am killing it. And Jesus responds with, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So your traditions that are making you look incredibly holy on the outside are actually leading your heart further and further away from Jesus. Your heart is incredibly far from me. How easy for, is it for us to do the exact same thing? Like, if you're like me, I have a great memory of all the things that I'm killing it at. Okay? Like, I remember those things incredibly well. I have a short-term memory in the ways that I fail. And then I flip that from my perspective of other people, essentially. And so, if you were to look at your own life... Do you look at the way that you're living to determine how you're doing with Jesus? Like, I read my Bible this morning. I might have been incredibly short with my wife, but we don't need to focus on that. I kept up with my reading plan. Or I I spent a good chunk of time in prayer. My screen time is down 27% from last week. But I might have been impatient with my roommates. I might have been angry with them. But look at these things that I'm doing well. Or if you were to look at how you view other people, do you see the way they're living as defining how they're doing with Jesus? So maybe in this year where there's been so many different divisive topics, you're looking at someone else and based on their stance of COVID, you're determining if they're a good enough person. Based on where they fall in this argument determines how they are to you. And so we create these steps and these expectations that someone needs to live up to in order for them to be good enough. But what we see in this text is that when we begin to make our own determinations of what makes people morally righteous or good enough in our eyes, we are adding to God's law. And Jesus is saying, was when you see him as Lord, you would realize that we have no ability to add to God's law. So for those of you who uh, know me, it takes a very short time to realize I'm a fairly competitive person. Um, And something that really does not jive well with competitive people are house rules. And so let's talk about it. So imagine you're playing a game that everyone knows. Like this is a common game, common rules that are going down. And so you're playing this game. And all of a sudden the people you're playing with do something illegal, so it's only right to point that out. And so you're like, hey, you actually can't do that move. Like that's, you can't do that move in that game. And they're like, oh, I know, but it's a house rule. And so if you're someone that's um, fairly competitive, not saying myself, you might pull out the rule book. Okay, so you're, you're pulling out the rule book and you're like, hey, look to page three, you will see you can't do that move. Like it's right here in the print, you can't do that move. And they're like, oh, I know it says that, but it's a house rule. And you're like, okay, um, next question. What magical house were you in that you felt you could change the rules of this game? Like, we might as well throw this thing out. We don't don't need that if we have your rules. Here's what this text is saying. There aren't house rules to the law of God. Like, if we begin to add our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own judgments of if people are good enough, we might as well throw this text out. Because what Jesus is saying is that you've made void the word of God. All we have to cling to is this text. This is the authority over our life. This is what determines how we live, how we see people. And if we were to cling to this text, we would realize that we are broken ourselves. That all of us are on an even playing field before God. That we are far more flawed than we could ever imagine, yet we are more loved than we could ever possibly imagine dream. That is what we see. And when we cling to this text and our perspective of ourselves and what this text says about other people, it will draw us to be people who are more and more like Jesus, who will love more and more like Jesus. So we don't want to diminish the word of God and his authority by bringing our own opinions to the table. We got to throw those aside and cling to God's word. And so if you were to look at your life right now, is this a descriptor of your heart to those close to you? Is this a descriptor of your heart to those that disagree with you? And I know, like, some of you might have a family member that's incredibly difficult to deal with. Like, conversations are always always hard. There's a short fuse, and around the holidays, you have to interact with these people, or you're conversing with them. And I want to ask you, is your posture critical Because you don't see them as good enough. Or are you coming at it with a spirit of gentleness because you realize you aren't either? So what we see in this text is that we have no ability to diminish God's authority in his word. But only when we cling to God's word and his definition of who we are will we walk in the way that Jesus did. And so lastly, we're going to look at a story of a Canaanite woman. And so this is a a story of someone that's actually radically different than the Pharisees that we just encountered in every way. And so we're looking at the religious elite, the highest in society. And now we're looking to a Gentile who is considered lowly in the eyes of the disciples. And we're also going to see a radically different response in her mind of who Jesus is to her so let's look at chapter 15, verse 21 through 22. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And so Jesus is going out of his way to encounter this woman. And again, like I said, this is both a Gentile and a woman. So the disciples wouldn't have even imagined that they would stop to recognize her. Didn't even think that they would stop to carry on a conversation. And yet Jesus encounters this woman. But this is one of the more interesting conversations we're gonna have we're gonna see Jesus having with another individual. Like Jesus is gonna come off like oddly standoffish. Like not wanting anything to do with her. And it's going to end with him saying, great is your faith. Which this is the only person in all of the gospels that Jesus says directly to somebody, great is your faith. So what leads to that response? She initiates the conversation, but Jesus first ignores. And then the disciples said, okay, let's get her out of here. Let's continue on with what's important. And he answered. He answered. In verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so if we realize we've got the Jewish family and anyone that wasn't a part of that family is a Gentile. So he's saying, I was sent to the house of Israel. So what is he, he's essentially saying is, I wasn't sent for you. But what is her response to that? She came and knelt before him. This is a posture where she's saying, I'm worshiping you. She calls him Lord for the second time, which is the name that he deserves. And ironically, is the only one that calls him Lord. And if we notice, this is one of the few characters that actually calls him Lord before he does something. So everyone else in the crowds and the masses see him do a miracle, see him do a healing, and then they call him Lord. She calls him Lord because she realizes that he is worthy of that title, whether he does something or not, because he is Lord. And Jesus gives her again an incredibly strong response. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Seems very harsh. Like, what is Jesus doing here? Because dogs is what Jewish people would call Gentiles to communicate that they aren't of their family in kind of a harsh way. And so Jesus is saying the Jewish family is like a family eating around a table, feasting together. And then everyone else is like the house puppy roaming around the seats. Why is Jesus confronting this woman and calling her a dog? He's not doing it to be harsh. He's actually doing it to test her in this moment. He's drawing out from her own heart a faith that exists in her heart for him. So he's drawing this out by making it seem impossible for her to encounter him. So he's seemingly opposing her time and time again, but she does not give up. She keeps pressing in. She keeps going after him because she wants more of him. And then she responds by saying, yes, Lord. In verse 27, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She responds in absolute humility. She's like, Jesus, I'm not not saying that I'm somebody. Like, I'm not saying that I'm deserving of this. I'm not saying I deserve a seat at the table. I don't. But what I do know is that if I just had a crumb of your presence, if I just had the smallest drop of who you are, that that would be great enough to conquer anything in this world. Like this demon that's in my daughter, I just need a crumb of you, a crumb of your lordship, and that demon's gone. And so she exudes an incredible faith. Because where little faith sees that Jesus isn't great enough to work, this woman's great faith said that even the littlest amount of Jesus is able to conquer the world. How would you live differently if this was your response to Jesus? If you truly operated as this woman did, that he is Lord of your life. Like going back to that Timberwolves game, I could spend hours convincing Paige that D'Angelo Russell is amazing. I could pull up all the stats. I could pull up his... Highlight videos going all the way from high school to college to the NBA. Like I could spend a lot of time talking about the people that he's recruiting to make this team amazing. I could spend hours. And maybe there would be like the slightest little change in her response. Like maybe she'd think he's a little bit cooler than before. But it pales in comparison to the dramatic response that will happen in our heart when we see Jesus as Lord. When we see him for who he is. As he actually is, the Lord over everything. That everything is in his control. Everything we are submitting our lives to him. Because when we, be, when we are a people that see him as Lord, we'll walk in peace and contentment. Even if this world is in absolute chaos. Even when we think everything else is falling apart, we will be in this foundation of resting in who Christ is. When we have conversations with people, we will come forth with a spirit of gentleness, not being critical of what they said, even if they disagree with us, because we realize that we have no right to bring our opinions and our judgments of who they are to this word. That only God has the ability to judge in that moment. When we see Jesus as Lord, we will also realize that only a crumb of who he is would bring about more joy and satisfaction in our life than the greatest heaping pile of treasures that this world could pile up before us. And we'll realize that everything good in this world actually points back to him and is from him because he is Lord. This is going to be the incredible posture of our heart when we see Jesus for who he is. Does that describe your heart this morning? Is Jesus Lord to you? And if you're like myself, I man, I, I connected, as I was reading through this text, I connected both with the disciples, where I doubted Jesus coming through. I connected with the Pharisees, where I look at my own actions and say, that makes me good enough, rather than God's word. Like, I, I felt the weight of this. I felt how I don't see Jesus as Lord. But the incredible news that we get to celebrate this morning, as we look at this season of Christmas, is that we realize that the Lord who's overall. Looked down to this earth and saw a world full of people that didn't see him for who he was. Saw a world full of people in brokenness striving to become lords themselves rather than acknowledging that only he was Lord. And he chose to come to this earth to live a perfect life in our place and to die on a cross So that we could be brought in to be children of God. Like he's talking about this new kingdom that he wants people to be a part of. Where there's joy and contentment and peace. And the reality of it is that we are completely unable to enter this kingdom on our own. And yet Jesus took our place. So that we could be children of God. So that we could actually strive to become a type of people more and more where we see Jesus as Lord of our life. Where we begin to submit our life to him more and more and give him the reins that he deserves on our life and we get to walk in the freedom of that reality. Like the story of the season is that the Lord came to be a baby in a stable and then chose to live a perfect life and showing us what this new kingdom might look like And then dying on a cross. That we might be drawn in to this new kingdom as well. And so if you haven't put your faith in him, the invitation is freely given to you. Like, do you want to be a part of that type of kingdom? And this is the incredible gift that we have been offered. And this is what we get to celebrate during this time. And we get to worship him as Lord. Even if our heart doesn't believe it, we get to worship him as Lord. Because that is exactly who he is. And we get to realize that our faith is not based on how great our faith is this morning, but the object of our faith. And those two realities are constant in our life. Therefore, we get to worship him this morning, no matter how you came into this room. And so we get to continue to sing songs of the season as we look at the story of Christmas, of Jesus coming to this earth. For the sole purpose of going to a cross that we might be drawn into this new kingdom where we can find satisfaction for our souls that's why we get to sing joy to the world that's why we get to celebrate because we can now find rest in submitting our lives to his lordship so the question that we land with is who is jesus to you let's pray father we Come before you this morning and i i am humbled by this text i realize my own brokenness as i look through this text i look at how i feel like i can be self-sufficient and not cling to your word how it can so quickly diminish your authority over my life how it can so quickly diminish your ability to provide like god are you gonna come through but father i pray that we would realize that our heart is ultimately longing for more of you And that this story of what we celebrate in this season is the invitation that we get into access with you. That we get to rejoice in who you are. We get to be with you. So Father, I pray that this week, that question of who who are you to us would rattle our hearts a little bit. Would cause us to look at maybe areas of our life that we don't trust you areas of our life where we think we have it on our own, where we look to other things, we get sent away to other things to find something that will provide satisfaction for us. And I pray that we would just apologize to you for that and that we would run to you and find satisfaction for our souls. So would we celebrate you this morning? It's in your name we pray, amen.